Patrick Brown, welcome to Hemp Errands. It's so wonderful to have you with us today. Thanks for having me, Joy. I really appreciate you taking the opportunity to have us on this morning. Yeah, indeed. And you are coming to us from North Carolina. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, Warren County, North Carolina, uh, a rural community um, right outside of Henderson, North Carolina. Um, We've been there for over 100 years. You are a fourth generation farmer at Brown Family Farms, which I understand established in 1865 by your great great grandfather. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. My great grandfather, Byron C. Brown, established our land um, at starting at around 100 to 200 acres uh, that he worked and ended up uh, owning. We've been there ever since. Um, after my great grandfather, Byron, my grandfather, Grover Brown, took over the estate. Uh, then my father came in uh, right after him, and I guess it, it was my turn to start in 2013. In 2013. And what has traditionally been farmed on the land? Uh, traditionally, we uh, grew, and my great-grandfather and grandfather grew tobacco, um, wheat, soybean, uh, sorghum, corn, vegetables, and raised livestock and fruits as well. And how big is this farm right now? Currently, we're around 168 acres wow. owned, but we farm additional uh, lease land in the community as well. So my, my yearly uh, estimate of farm cultivation is anywhere between 170 to 200 acres. And it is through your taking over as a fourth generation, your family's legacy, while you, of course, maintain uh, a whole other career, toggling as many of us in hemp uh, do as we deliver on the dream and the emergence of this versatile, valuable crop. It's through this farm that you have created Hempfinity. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, I started my company, which is the umbrella of the brand Hempfinity, the Connect Group LLC in 2013, um, where I basically, when I started farming as the fourth generation farmer, set up a business establishment, something that my father did do traditionally back then. Most farmers didn't have a business uh, set up for the products and goods that they serviced because they were just selling their products to commodity markets for the USDA. So what I was able to do is uh, set up more of a business structure. I have a business administration and management degree from Fayetteville State University, where I graduated in 2005, where I learned the importance of business and setting businesses up correctly for tax preferences, deferments, uh, subsidies from the government and things like that. And also being able to apply for grants to help our farm scale up each and every year. So all of these uh, facets of the reasons why we set up our, our structure of our farm and a business setup. Um, as well as being able to expand into an agro-tourism setting. So all of these things um, to include a brick-and-mortar retail space as well for our in-product uh, processes and being able to sell to the community, I just found that it was more business savvy to set the farm up in a way that we could maximize our liquidation on our assets. And it also is very much in keeping with the deep sense of community that you have and and education. I know that like me, hemp has inspired you tremendously. Uh, You'd love to be able to explore all the aspects of hemp, extract, oil, seed, and fiber, which of course will be impossible for any farmer, any processor and manufacturer to deal with all of it. But I know um, from the articles that I've read of the tremendous work that you're doing, how inspired you are, and that 
that you really seek for Hempfinity and for Brown Family Farms to be a demonstration hub uh, and an inspiration and education for the community and for all that visit it uh, for what agriculture is, who farmers are, these regenerative agricultural techniques that I'd like you to tell us about and what hemp is and can be and can do. What is your your vision ultimately for the farm? The vision ultimately for our farm is to be a all inclusive uh, destination for education on regenerative regeneration pro- products and, and goods and services. Uh, being able to show traditional farmers in North Carolina and outside of North Carolina the carbon makeup of what we have to ensure in our soil in order to get that a plentiful of uh, yield, a high yield of whatever we grow. Um, Carbonomics is basically what I call it. Uh, What we put into the soil is just as valuable as what we get from it. Also, it helps with the global warming aspect of what we're dealing with today. Everyone has saw the tragic uh, incident that happened in Haiti a couple of weeks ago. Um, from what we can say, a, a Scientology, what sci- scientists can say that is global warming. And I believe in that. I believe that as much land that we till up, it, it affects the carbon makeup that's going back into the atmosphere that's causing all of these uh, variances of weather issues throughout the world. So the education piece allowing our farm to be a demonstration farm ties back into the regenerative agriculture practice program that we can help educate other people. We chose industrial hemp as one of the first carbon plus um, uh, crops to grow, to add a regeneration program to our farm, but we look to add other carbon nutrient crops, which would be moringa, comfrey, uh, bamboo, um, and other various plants that we could grow to add to our herbal uh, program uh, for medicinal use. Because at the end of the day, not only does it help the environment, but it helps our bodies um, to heal naturally. So uh, education, demonstration, and also agro-tourism, where we can have like uh, expos on our farm to be able to uh, promote other businesses that we are... um, uh, have a great relationship with or that we are getting to know. Um, I allow them to have a way to come down on our large area of uh, display to be able to present uh, good goods and services that they project and that they grow. Um, being able to develop a relationship with the universities. Currently, we've been able to um, provide internship programs to agriculture programs at North Carolina State University. Winston-Salem State University, both in North Carolina, both with uh, pretty prominent agriculture programs. Um, And lastly, we just look to continue to scale our farm up for future generations. I I tell my wife all the time, I just don't farm for myself. I farm because we have to make sure that we keep our land in our family for future generations. It just doesn't stop with me, just like it didn't stop with my dad. Um, back more so when my father farmed, he had to farm to survive. Where so now we get a better opportunity to now uh, plant more risk risk management crops that are not supported yet by the USDA to show them the uh, research on what we grow and maybe get some future support from the federal government. And so, of course, the FDA when it comes to cannabis. 
So these are the opportunities that we have to set forth for the future and not just focus on the right now. Such fantastic planning and positioning and positioning that your family uh, set you up for. And then this tremendous education that is being poured into regenerative farming and empowering the community and healing it. Tell us how you came to hemp. What was what is your hemp story? When did you first learn about it? When did that light bulb go on for you? So it, the light bulb went on for us is when we were not allowed to grow any more tobacco in the state of North Carolina, which was 2017. Uh, the North Carolina Industrial Hemp Pilot Program started in 2014. And of course, I had to do a lot of convincing of my parents to be able to step into a realm of agriculture for industrial hemp, because one my mother, she's very, she was very, very smart and business savvy when it comes to farm profitability, makeup and scalability and understanding what the end buyer needs or what the uh, back then they would say what the warehouse wants. Um, so the issue was that it wasn't a it wasn't a USDA supported program. So the farmer takes too much risk to grow a crop like that, because one if you're not vertically integrated to be able to produce your own products, then how in the world would you be able to get rid of inventory before it goes bad? So that was one of the issues that made it more riskier for us. But I had to uh, show them that, you know, you can't just survive growing soybean every year. And it's a pesticide crop uh, or herbicide and uh, pesticide crop. So it's not doing anything for the regenerative processes of your soil. It's only breaking down. It's not putting back in. And um, the same thing for a cover with winter wheat. It's all the same thing. You can't just rotate those two crops. So we were rotating soybean, wheat, and tobacco. That's what we were doing every year. Once the tobacco buyout, which was, excuse me, a USDA uh, subsidy for farmers that grow less than 100 acres of uh, tobacco crops per season, they basically paid out farms that, if you had a projectivity of 10 to 15 years left to farm, they would pay you out based on what they thought the pound per acre would be for that amount of time you were able to retire. Still wasn't enough for small farms like us. Uh, we really got the, the the rough end of the stick because we've always been a farm that only produced up to 75 to 100 acres of commodity production per year. So the farmers that benefited from that program of the North Carolina buyout were those big farmers, like three to 400 to 500 to 600 acres a year, because they were able to say, oh, well, thank you. Uh, with the amount of land that we produce because of the amount that we report back to the FSA, Farm Service Agency, every year, we're going to be great. So it gave those farms, those large farms, the ability to do other things, pumpkin patch farms, corn mazes, tours, and and amphitheater, bed and breakfast, barnyard weddings. It gave them the opportunity to expand their traditional farming programs to now this big agro-tourism division that does so well, especially during times of pandemics, Uh, just to be honest with you. Who gets the short end of the stick always is either the minority farmer or the disadvantaged farmer or the farmer that grows less than 100 acres every year. Um, I tell people all the time, if they understood the USDA subsidy buyback risk management plan for crops, 
they'll understand why farmers don't really want to grow industrial hemp. And I'm, I don't mean to get off subject, but when they start growing crops that aren't supported by the federal government, then it takes away from the crops that are supported by the federal government. So if a farmer continues to increase his, his acreage on normal supported commodity crops, then he has a better chance of getting a larger subsidy back from the government if he doesn't meet the production that he's normally accustomed to producing each and every year. It's a big learning curve in education for farmers. And another issue is air property. We have a big issue with air property in minority farmers' families. I'll say Florida passed a very revolutionary law, I think, recently, and other states need to fall in line. Please address this, sir. Yes. So the issue, I can only speak more so of what I'm accustomed to uh, dealing with when I have to lease air property. Uh, I try to lease air property that's relatively uh, familiar to my family. Um, Actually, I lease property that my great-great-grandfather once owned. May may I impose on you, Patrick, which is set our listeners up to explain to them what air property is, because many of them probably don't realize we're talking about H-E-I-R, inherited air property. Could you just set that foundation up for the listeners? This is so important to discuss. Sure. Air property is uh, mostly common known as property that has been owned by ancestor or relative that sets the property up to be passed down to the descendants of that particular ancestor or relative. That property normally is equally passed down to the amount of siblings in each family, or it doesn't necessarily have to be a sibling. It can be someone that is willed, that the land is willed to, which they would still be considered the heir. Uh, In order to utilize air properly effectively is that all the heirs have to be in agreement to be able to move forward on whether they would like to lease, farm, or sell. Um, and in that same agreement, it's known that those heirs agree to um, all be benefiting from the land. A lot of times, most heirs that are not living around the property uh, or that live farther away from the property, not not always uh, receives their fair share. So it causes disagreements amongst the siblings or heirs that are established on that particular set of land. And um, sometimes air property goes unpaid um, and becomes tax um, tax leaned, which causes that particular county that that land is to forfeit that land to an auction. And when Uh, This particular process happens. Uh, Family members try to uh, quickly pay whatever is owed in the tax office so that they can save that land. But at the end of the day, even if you pay the taxes on uh, lien property, doesn't necessarily or will necessarily mean that you would own the air property. That just means that you're able to prevent it from being auctioned off to the highest bidder. So what happens in that case is, once the taxes are even uh, uh, are paid, you still have an issue amongst siblings to try to move further if they want if one wants to sell and one does not. So we've seen a lot of issues with air property and the disagreements that it causes. And what happens is that during that entire process, the land is the worst thing that 
is taking the brunt end of the stick. They're, the land is what's suffering the most because one is not being utilized properly. It's not being uh, farmed properly or it's going to be either sold and be economic developed where you start to lose farmland, where these companies come in and they build townhomes and businesses and, and cul-de-sacs and things like that. And um, that's why it's so important to me to maintain the land in my family. Because at one time, my great-grandfather owned over 2,000 acres, and now we only own 170. So it's very important that I try to lease the land that my father once owned, which are my relatives, and most of them live up north. So what I try to do is go in and farm some of the land that my great-grandfather once farmed, if it's available to be farmed, as far as the... uh, 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 farm ready cultivation where there's not trees and it doesn't need to be excavated. Um, so that's what I try to do to try to keep continuing to make sure that that land is being properly managed, making sure that proper nutrients are in the land, making sure the soil is built up correctly. Because who knows, one day I might be able to buy that land back from my family members. Oh, I I love it. I absolutely love it. And when we talk about obviously regenerative agricultural techniques, we're talking about building the soil. And as I say in nearly every episode of Hemp Barons, if it's not for the top six inches of soil and rainfall and farmers, we are all dead. Uh, It doesn't get much more important than that. So so you, the, the tobacco buyout, this is so fantastic to really educate uh, the listeners here on these underlying systemic American agricultural trickery that we have here uh, going on. And, and as usual, um, it's our Black, Indigenous, and people of color who suffer the most at the hands of all of it. Um, so the great tobacco buyout comes along, basically capital expenditure influxes for these larger farms that now have these other giant operations and revenue streams. Um, and for smaller farms like you, a little a pittance here and there and off to take more risk. And yet here you are like a champion stepping up and doing it over and, and over again. What brought you to hemp, though? When did you first learn about hemp? So uh, when the tobacco bout uh, took place and we were not allowed to uh, farm tobacco anymore, that's when I sat down with my mom. Uh, my dad at that time um, is non-ambulatory. He's 94 years old today. And um, he wasn't able to understand exactly what we were doing, but he could see what we were doing. He could see that I was still farming, which was the main thing. Um, and my mother we decided that we should go ahead and put in our application for a uh, the pilot program in North Carolina. And we could just start with uh, setting up a cooperative amongst other farms in the area to be able to learn exactly the plant makeup, genetic makeup, germination, cultivation, propagation on industrial hemp, understanding the uh, c- correct genetics for our longitude and latitude. And that, that was um, something that was a risk as well because of course you know uh, most states under the pilot program they have a threshold for thc so we wanted to make sure that we formed the genetics that would work best for us because we didn't have enough uh physical experience of growing the plant 
we had enough education on the plant that we had been studying for a while. So what I did was I reached out to the North Carolina Industrial Hemp Pilot Program Director. Was that Emily Febles? Uh Paul Adams. So Paul Adams must have taken Emily Febles's place. Oh, she was with North Carolina University. She was our first, by the way, Washington State Department of Agriculture Industrial Hemp Pilot Program Coordinator. And when the money ran out in Washington, we only had it funded for one year. She moved on to North Carolina, but it sounds like uh, Paul was after her. It's it's he's been running. He's been in charge of the program now since I started uh, or maybe before. So I'm not sure what his start date was, but I was able to um, reach out to him at the time. I was application number one thousand four hundred and forty six. So applications before me that were uh, approved had been farming it since twenty fifteen. So what I did was I asked uh, the information of the first one through four approved farmers, and I was able to uh, reach out to the fourth farmer of the industrial hemp program and study his genetics. His genetics were the cherry beet variety sativa industrial hemp plant. He identified that that plant was resilient in the area of North Carolina that we grow and that the THC levels had more, um, less likely to exceed the threshold of 0.3% based on the row crop structure of sun-grown application that we do on our farm. So what I did was I focused on just one genetic plant at a time, one variety of uh, industrial hemp, which was the cherry bee sativa ale. And that way, when I figured out what I was going to grow, I then sat down to identify how could I turn this particular biomass into a product line that I could advertise the effects of what it would do to help mitigate some of the issues that I could have potential customers purchase my products for that they were suffering from. What I was able to identify was the pain, anxiety, depression, PTSD, and other things such as gyratic issues or rheumatoid issues or, or, or things like that, that patients may be suffering from. So then I figured out, well, I'll just focus on these particular things and then hopefully I can create a topical cream that can help those people. And that's what I did. And that's why I focused on just that particular genetics. So we have been growing the cherry bead the entire time, um, sun grown. And then as I started to become more, um, have more growers experience, then we started to endeavor in the hybrids and the Ithacas. So we started to move those crops indoor and we focused on long-term growing, multiple season harvests. So we were able to start growing the hybrids and the Ithacas uh, first indoor uh, for uh, in a 9,000 square feet indoor growing space. So that's what, how I, kind of scaled up my operation to understand the first thing was identifying the market that I needed to sell my product to. So I was able to get, after getting a grower's license in 2016, I was able to get a processing license as well. With the processing license, I was able to lease a already owned uh, business, which is a local distillery, to be able to process my goods and services under ethanol and CO2 extraction. So that way we were able to start our product line from seed to shelf and from seed to shelf process. Of course, that's when I started my own branding, which I created the brand of Hempfinity, 
which is licensed and insured by the United States Patent Office here in Washington, D.C. So um, I was able to do those things. But first, I took step by step by step by step. Nothing happened overnight. Um, the, the most important thing was to make sure that we grew the plant properly, make sure that we were in compliance, having the state come out and test, and as well as us following up with our third-party panel tests as well. And that's where we are today um, with the CBD. And now this year we were able to actually go into the actual uh, growing of industrial hemp fiber, herd, and grain, which is what I see as the way that traditional farmers can expand their farm and to get more buy-in by the federal government. Because now we're getting into the corporation's uh, supply of what they need for goods and services. This year alone, we were able to grow over 170 acres of industrial hemp fiber, herd, and grain for corporations that are willing to make a head-to-toe garment and textiles, for corporations that are able to make animal feeding for the grain and hip hearts for human consumption. With that, we are possibly also able to get into other markets where they can utilize our fiber for our industrial hemp to make things that offset the production of plastics, biofuels, and um, possibly manufacturing wood for hempcrete. So, so let me ask you, and let's unpack that because it's so it's tremendous what you're doing here. And and again, I I've been in hemp for thirty years, and so I. I generally have to be somewhat of a dream killer for folks because they want to do everything. You know, they want to grow the plant and then they want to create the textile, manufacture the garment and then distribute it. Right. And it's difficult to do all of those things. You are already into growing the biomass for extract, processing, manufacture, distributing your own brand, a tremendous line of products. You are also then have grown oil seed varieties and fiber varieties and put them out into the market already? The fiber and grain and uh, herd varieties will be put out into the market in September of this year. You are growing this year for oil seed and fiber varieties of hemp on your land? Yes. Oh, it's tremendous, Patrick. And um, did you do any variety trials for those? Or you, you've, you've been working with universities. Obviously, you're quite plugged in. Have you gotten clues as to what's growing well in your region? Yes. So that was the key to having uh, buy-in from the corporations that we pitched to to grow it for them. They identified the seeds that help with the longitude and latitude that are grown in our area based on the trials that were done on their behalf for the fiber herd and the grain. Uh, what we promised is that we stick to the contract on the farmer's end, uh, being able to be a part of the process of creation. Uh, that is what's most important to me. We've been able to sit at the table to create a product that could possibly provide the scalability and notoriety of Brown Family Farms and what we're able to uh, provide. That's more important to me and building relationships with these companies so that we can grow with them for the future. This year is our first year being tied into that, but the possibilities may be endless. Absolutely. And particularly with leased land, as you continue to purchase more to continue to build the Brown family farms, this is just absolutely outstanding. Again, you're 
taking on the risk, doing these things, but you, you believe and you are delivering on the promise of hemp. Tremendous role that you're playing in North Carolina, in America, and in North America, this reemergence of this versatile, valuable crop. I want to go back to something that you said earlier and that is, and believe me, I will attribute it to you every time I use it, but carbonomics. Explain to us a little bit about carbonomics, please, and then how that, uh, how that translates into agriculture. Yes. Uh, so I always utilize the term carbonomics is because in order for farmers to understand the soil makeup and buildup, they have to identify what you take out of the soil. Uh, when we go into the land and we constantly take, 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 take by tillage and by disrupting the uh, microcombs that are trying to form for every plant that you grow, you're taking away the amount of carbon that's needed to identify that particular plant to grow at the maximized uh, photosynthesis. So when farmers understand that you can have or you can grow some of the same products, it may just take more education and um, it may take more time to build up, but you have to be able to rotate certain plots in order to provide that microcone buildup or that carbon buildup uh, because it's so much important. So I tell people all the time that they need to understand the term carbonomics because you have to be able to add more photosynthesis into the soil or more carbon into the soil by planting more plants. And building that organic matter. Can you explain? And thank you so much. And what a great word. Patrick, you got a, you got a TM carbonomics. I think you need to talk to USPTO about that one too, brother. <laughs> Um, <laughs> can you explain to us some additional regenerative agricultural techniques? Um, you, you'd spoken earlier. I don't think we got it on tape, but you spoke earlier about, you know, the traditional farming practices that have been used on the land. And of course, traditional farming practices that are used in big ag across this nation every day, depleting, salinating uh, the soil. Explain to us some of the regenerative techniques that you're using. And, and if you don't mind, and this may be a reach and a bit of an ask, but I often hear folks say, yes, well, that works for the smaller farms, but it's not going to work for big ag. So maybe as you you educate our audience um, to the extent you've got something to add about how big ag, gigantic, large-scale farms could also implement some of these practices. Please feel free to insert that as well. Sure. Actually, <clears throat> actually I'll start with that. Um, There's no such thing as large farms not being able to have a uh, regenerative uh, agriculture process. What farms have to understand is that you can't profit off of every plot of land that you have you have to be able to utilize a crop, a proper crop rotation. Um, it takes anywhere between three to five years to build up certain plots that you have taken away as much of the, not, uh, the carbon that you have over the years from not rotating it at all. So three to five years for proper rotation for certain plots of land and being able to grow things that could um, also benefit the soil and could possibly create some form of a harvest for livestock. Uh, proper grazing and adding animal production to your farm is also important for regeneration processes. Um, soil is a living, breathing system, and sometimes we feed the soil 
sometimes we have to feed the soil in order for it to feed us. So it's it's like a relationship. If you are in a relationship and all you do is take, 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 the maximum you can provide in every opportunity, the maximum you uh, do in every opportunity, what you are doing is taken away uh, from that particular soil and it's not going to last long. So um, growing growing products is the same concept. You know, when you constantly take, 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 take away from the genetic makeup of what you're trying to put into it, it's not going to last long. And what you're doing is you're harming your land from future generations of farming. So some of the process that we do uh, is companionship planting. Um, we add companion plants to uh, row crops that we already grow. Um, when we have to uh, utilize um, forms of uh, regenerative programs for ve vegetables that we grow, we do a lot of companionship planting. Um, so that's some of the process that we add. Then, of course, you know, the industrial hemp program is a part of our regenerative process as well, because we don't apply any pesticides, herbicides or fungicides to our crops. So uh, we do a, um, a cut at the end of the season for our industrial fiber plants. And then we come in with a, a cover crop for the wintertime. Or we could possibly do a no-till uh, program for a second uh, grain crop at the end of each season for industrial hemp as well. Um, buckwheat, crimson clover, Lydell clover, um, ryegrass, all these things can be implemented into a uh, program for animals as well, uh, as I mentioned before. So all of those things we have uh, practice on our farm. Just absolutely outstanding. And ultimately, what is the reward? And we're watching farmers enjoy this reward. It is increased yield. Uh, and, 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 and not just increased yield, but maybe a higher nutritional profile or a higher strength fiber. When we build the soil, we build our crops and we build the farm gate. Uh, from the farmer's perspective. Right, that's correct. Now, in terms of cover crops, if we could just explain a little bit about what they are. When I drive by, you know, miles and miles of farmland and all I see is bare brown dirt. And that's essentially what it is. I, I barely recognize it as soil because I know due to the absolute exposure that it is to the elements that I'm probably looking at dirt that has been depleted from years and years of, of monocropping and just not using proper techniques. Want to talk to us a little bit about what cover crops do and are? Yes. So it does exactly the opposite of what you just described. Um, it provides the nutrients to the soil in order to allow living organisms to continue to live um, when you add a cover. Um, everyone benefits from it. Um, the environment benefits from it. The soil benefits from it. The animals benefit from it. Um, and of course, your plants that you grow in the following season will benefit from it. You'll have, like you mentioned, higher yields. Um, but it just has to, farmers have to understand that it got to take time to create that program. Some of the things <clears throat> that we've seen um, from the effects of global warming should be more than enough to give these farmers a, a idea of, hey, I got to do something, you know. Um, but also the United States government through the United States Department of Agriculture has to provide programs that kind of almost put farmers up against the wall to start utilizing those programs, um, not just incentives, but actually like 
taken away from some of the programs that they may be accustomed to receiving because they're not, but because they not they are not following these guidelines. They need to put uh, strict regulations into regenerative agriculture. That's my take on it. You have to be willing to take that stand. But at the same time, also the the government also needs to provide incentives to farmers to be able to produce certain products that may take time for them to grow things regeneratively. I agree 110 percent. And I I'm trying to remain hopeful here uh, with USDA Secretary Tom Vilsack, who is back. Um, any any thoughts to share on what you might predict for the future under his leadership in terms of really turning on the heat um, and taking the USDA? The USDA really, not just the EPA, but I see the USDA as being our our first line of defense, it can be the heroin heroines that we need uh, for climate change here if it if it works its public policy uh, correctly. Any predictions under the leadership of Tom Vilsack? Well, I would say uh, for Tom Vilsack, this is his second chance to make it a better, better uh, attempt to include in, uh, inclusivity in small farmers opportunities to get a fair share of the agriculture practices in the United States. This is the second chance for his opportunity to lead in the direction for everyone to not just include uh, different demographics of farmers, but to add the regeneration programs to help with global warming. He needs to be able to work alongside EPA directly to understand what things that are going on in the world to not just include agriculture that's driving this, these issues and also be able to work alongside other agencies to develop ways that agriculture can be tied in so that we can all benefit together and be able to scale up our economy as well. So he plays a vital role in the program. My uh, state ag state commissioner, Mr. Steve Troxler, does a great job of trying to work alongside whoever is in that position of authority to make sure that North Carolina continues to add to the economic value of agriculture in our state. Right now is a $96.5 billion industry, and we want to continue to add agriculture as the number one economic program in the state. And by doing that is working um, together with uh, Mr. Vilsack to be able to make sure that we add more goods and services for production to the existing subsidy supported agriculture programs. For example, industrial hemp, certain medicinal herbs, uh, various uh, out of season crops that can be utilized indoor scaling farms up to be able to include indoor propagation, germination, and cultivation so that North Carolina can exceed in agriculture for year-round production. Uh, that also ties into infrastructure. We need to tie the agriculture infrastructure into the manufacturing infrastructure. And what I know is there's only one plant that can do that, and that's cannabis. We uh, have an opportunity for Mr. Belichick to be able to listen to people like myself, people like you to be able to learn that as the world changes, so does agriculture. Everything can't be traditional. No one wants to exist in a world that we existed in during the Roosevelt administration, during the Dust Bowl, where nobody could understand what was happening with the soil genetic makeup or uh, carbonized uh, 
nutrients that were being taken away until it was too late. And that almost caused another Great Depression. So we don't want to relive that that Dust Bowl scenario. And in order for us to not relive that Dust Bowl scenario, we need to all be regulated on the programs that we put into our farm. Um, so that's where we are today. And I just feel like I hope this video gets to his uh, in front of him and he's able to view it so he can listen to just a small, small voice uh, that's actually doing these things in North Carolina. Small voice making huge moves and having a tremendous impact on your family, your community. Again, the state of Carolina, the whole continent. I cannot thank you enough for being with us today, Patrick. I can't wait to have you back on. Man, am I watching Brown Family Farms and Hempfinity. Folks, please go to podconnex, P-O-D-C-O-N-X.com. Find all of your assets here, uh, how you can get to uh, Patrick's tremendous product line from his own vertically integrated farm uh, at HempfinityUS.com. Patrick, thank you so much again. Can't wait to have you back. Thank you. I appreciate you having us. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, this is Cheryl Murray Powell Esquire, and I'm the host of the Terps in the City podcast. I am a cannabis agricultural dietary supplement and trade attorney. I'm also a hemp farmer, and I've been recently named to the list of High Times Magazine's top 100 influencers in cannabis. I'm inviting you to follow me along my journey as I move back to New York to support the adult use market there. You're going to get a chance to listen to conversations with some of my friends along the way. I look forward to seeing you at Terps in the City.